0: On June 30th, 2013, the captain of the Granite Mountain Hotshots led his team of firefighters out of the blackened safety of a burn scar and over a ridge and down into a basin. They were headed towards a nearby ranch house to continue fighting the Yarnell Hill wildfire. This was in Arizona, and these 19 firefighters had been battling that blaze all day in a hundred degree heat. The conditions of course were grueling, but to this point, not insurmountable. At 2 PM, the wind had been steady at five to 10 miles per hour. And the two foot tall flame wall was moving at just a mere 50 feet per hour. But conditions had changed dramatically in just a few hours. And when that crew of hotshots turned the corner in that basin, they were confronted by 12-foot flames. Hidden behind that ridge and out of their sight, the flame had moved four miles in just 20 minutes. And they realized in that moment that there was no escape. They were forced to deploy their emergency fire shelters, which are lightweight aluminum tents, that every wildland firefighter carries with him as a last resort. These tents are specifically designed to deflect extreme heat, but they melt away when they come in contact with direct flame. Within them, a firefighter can survive temperatures up to 300 degrees. But the flames that swept over those 19 thin shelters that day reached a boulder-splitting 2,000 degrees. There were no survivors. It was the deadliest day in fire, for firefighter fatalities in America since 9-11. In those final moments, those 19 men were professional and brave and, and quick about their work, and yet, nevertheless, the refuge that was left to them was not enough. Our passage today confronts us with that same sobering question. Is your refuge the right choice? Can it withstand the firestorm that is coming? If you would, turn with me to Psalm chapter 11. The Psalms are there—a collection of poems written over three thousand years ago. Collectively, they worship the Lord through a vast array of human experiences, public and private, positive and negative. And I want us to look at Psalm 11 together this morning. It says, "To the choirmaster of David, In the Lord I take refuge." How can you say to my soul, flee like a bird to your mountain? For behold, the wicked bend the bow. They have fitted their arrow to the string to shoot in the dark at the upright in heart. If the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? The Lord is in his holy temple. The Lord's throne is in heaven. His eyes see, his eyelids test the children of man. The Lord tests the righteous, but his soul hates the wicked and the one who loves violence. Let him rain coals on the wicked, fire and sulfur, and a scorching wind shall be the portion of their cup. For the Lord is righteous. He loves righteous deeds. The upright shall behold his face. Now, it's not clear when King David wrote this particular psalm, but what is clear is that David is writing from a point of crisis in his life. So whether he's being maybe pursued by Saul or later by Absalom or or he's reeling from the slaughter of the priest at Nob in 1 Samuel 22, whatever it might be, David is grappling with what to do next. Does he run or does he remain? Where, where does he turn? To whom does he turn? And I think we can all identify with these kind of circumstances. Maybe not always in the kind of existential way that David was forced to, although some of us this week have, have faced mortality and death. But, but even outside of that, we all still constantly are forced to ask ourselves in difficulty, what do I do next? Do I run or remain? Where do I turn? To whom do I turn? These questions echo in our minds. In the midst of his crisis, David writes this psalm to remind us that in every difficulty, whether big or small, there will always be two elements. There's much more, but there are two he wants to remind us of today. The first is that there is a temptation to run to the wrong refuge. And the second is that there is testing that comes from the righteous ruler. And there are two stanzas in our psalm today, and I think those serve to give us those two reminders. And so they will serve as our, our points today today. There will always be a temptation to run to the wrong refuge. And in every difficulty, there is testing that comes from the righteous ruler. So let's look at the temptation to run to the wrong refuge. Whatever the circumstances are that David is facing, he is also having to handle that with another voice in his ear. So in verse 1, we're introduced to the voice of the foolish counselor. This counselor attempts to direct David's next steps by commanding that David flee to the mountain like a bird. There's a lot of ambiguity uh, surrounding who this foolish counselor is, maybe what, what, what their motives might be, even whether or not they get everything wrong or whether some of the things they say might be right. So, the foolish counselor could be like a a, a nefarious actor, someone who's bent on destroying David. The the counsel that they give in verses 2 and 3 could be patently false. It's completely made up, it's a lie with the intent of destruction. It's possible that the foolish counselor is, is not that untrustworthy counselor, but he's a trusted insider. Maybe someone who's just completely misread the situation. And in, in this case, based off of their own fears or misinformation that they've received, the the counsel they give to David is, is hyperbolic. They, they exaggerate. But in reality, there is no bowman in the in the in the in the ambush. There is no foundations that are being destroyed. In this case, the trusted. Counselor might, might be trying to be honest. He might be trying to be helpful, but he's wrong. It could be that the voice here is not the voice of an individual. This voice could be standing in as kind of the, the coral of all of society who, who is bringing the weight of all of their opinions to bear on David's life. It might be that there really are wicked men ready and waiting to fill David's back with arrows. And it might be that the foundations of society have completely crumbled under their feet. Some translators will even close the quotation marks at the end of verse one instead of at the end of verse three, implying that verses two and three are there to convey reality, not fiction. So with all of those options in front of us, it's important to know that while all of those are legitimate ways to interpret what's going on here, the psalm is intentionally silent on the context clues we need to figure all of that out. And we find examples of all of those in scripture. So it could be any one of those. We actually find all those examples in our own lives. It's probably not hard for you to think about how those very voices might be ringing in your own ears. We hear about bad actors from other nations, from enemy countries that are intentionally spreading lies and half-truths on social media. Your, your best girlfriends, they, they're constantly giving you conflicting advice, sometimes because they're literally trying to sell you something, and other times out of, out of genuine goodwill. And, and it's not just individual voices that we hear speaking to us. Sometimes it feels like our entire country is is clamoring for us to to change this or or to keep that. Sometimes the truth is ignored for the sake of a political cause or political gain. Sometimes the facts are just misrepresented. It's a way to support one view over another. Sometimes the facts are clearly explained And yet, that doesn't stop the debate from raging on what might be the causes or the conclusions that come from that data. And and the clamor of the voices in our head and in our society builds and builds, and the questions build and build within us. What do I do next? Where, Where do I turn? Do I run or do I remain? To whom do I turn? And in the midst of all of those questions, David has already given his answer. Did you see it in verse 1? It preempts everything that follows. It's the top line in this memo. He says, in the Lord I take refuge. David makes it very clear that what marks the other voice as foolish is that it's tempting David to run to the wrong refuge. The foolish counsel here is to flee to the mountains, to find refuge and security and strength in the cover of creation instead of in the creator. And what makes the advice wrong is is less about the choice of run or remain, and more, about the choice of refuge. It's less about whether he should run or remain, it's more about his choice of refuge. We want to be careful here not to oversimplify this counsel down to whether or not David should run or remain, whether it's just about action. Maybe our, our, our rugged American individualism might lead us to interpret these verses as a mandate to always stand your ground, to always go down with the ship, and never retreat. But, but that wouldn't be consistent with the way David, who wrote this psalm, lived out this psalm. So there certainly were times when David, in faithfulness to his refuge, the Lord, stood his ground. There will be times when you, in faithfulness to your refuge, the Lord, must stand your ground. When Goliath taunted the one true and living God, David remained and did not run. But there are other times when faithfulness to the Lord as his refuge meant David couldn't remain. For instance, if he was going to avoid having to kill the Lord's anointed Saul because his own danger and his own life was in jeopardy, well then David had to skip town. David had to literally run to the mountains. That was what faithfulness dictated. So it's not about one action or the other. It's about the right refuge. Now, to be fair, David also at times is unfaithful. At at, at times, David uh, runs when he should remain. He remains when he should have run. There are stories about how he he ran to the Philistines when he should have remained in Israel, trusting the Lord. Or, Or when David should have run to the battlefield, Instead of remaining in Jerusalem and sinning with Bathsheba. So, so while David maybe isn't the perfect model of how this is supposed to work out, we can look to his distant heir and grandson, Jesus Christ. So at times it works the same way. At times, faithfulness for Jesus meant remaining. He, he remained away from Bethany while his friend Lazarus was sick and dying. He remained in the garden at Gethsemane while others ran and he was arrested. He remained on the cross while he was reviled by men and bore the wrath of God for sins he didn't commit. Sometimes faithfulness to the Lord as your refuge will mean you don't move a muscle. But at other times, faithfulness, for our savior meant moving on, following the Lord in faithfulness. He left one village where there were still people left to be healed and he went to the next village where the gospel had not yet been proclaimed. He even commanded us to flee at times when appropriate. When Jesus taught his disciples about his second coming in Matthew 24, He specifically told them, let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains when the signs of his return were clear. So again, let's not oversimplify this and think that it's just about remaining versus running. It's about who is your refuge? As you remain or as you run, who are you trusting to protect you? Because faithfulness is not about a list of things we do or don't do. It's about believing and trusting that the Lord is the right refuge. So how do we live that out? What what does that look like? How do we live out this first idea that we're to avoid the temptation of running to the wrong refuge? Well, three quick thoughts and then we'll move on to stanza two. First, remain in Christ. Christ. You're if you're going to avoid being in the wrong refuge and find yourself in the right refuge, then remain in Christ. Jesus tells us in John 15, starting in verse 4, he says, Remain in me, and I in you. Just as a branch is unable to produce fruit by itself unless it remains on the vine, neither can you, unless you remain in me. Skipping down to verse 7, he says, If you remain in me, and my words remain in you. Ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. So John 15, verse 7, as Jesus is giving us instruction on what it looks like for you to practically remain in the right refuge, tells centers on the fact that we are going to be marked by the word and by prayer. So establish the habits of personal prayer and Bible reading. And then invest in the areas within our church that center on God's word and prayer. We're we're starting a series next week in Mark. Pick up there. Read that this week. Pray through it for yourself, for your family, for our church. Come on Wednesday night. Join us in these spaces where we are growing in remaining individually and encouraging one another to remain corporately. Secondly, if we're going to avoid this temptation, then we have to remember that those who find their refuge in the Lord do not give or receive foolish counsel. We don't want to be marked as the second voice. We want to be the one who like David cries, I take refuge in the Lord. And so believer, do not be a fearmonger. Don't traffic in fear. Be be careful that your media habits, whether that's social media, or what you listen to on the radio, or what you watch on television, make sure they aren't built around stoking fear. Maybe that's fear of the left, or or, or fear of the right. Watch out that your feed isn't filled with uh, constant exclamations of, of shock and rage. That the the anti-group that you are anti has done the thing that you are anti. Whether it's Antifa or an anti-vaxxer or an anti-masker or an anti-whatever. Make sure that everything you're seeing is not constantly reinforcing the fears that could be out there. We absolutely had to be mindful of what we are consuming and what we as Christians are producing. What we're sharing Because here's the reality. The world does not have the answers. The world does not have the answers. It only has the problems. It only has the problems. And so when we peddle their problems, we inadvertently promote their answers as well. And we tell each other and ourselves and the watching world, flee to the mountains instead of run to the right refuge. Don't listen to the voice of the foolish counselor, and please don't be the voice of the foolish counselor. And thirdly, if we're going to avoid this temptation, do not rest on temporary foundations or run to temporary mountains. That's here, the fear that's expressed. We're told to flee to the mountains because the foundations are destroyed in verse 3. We want to be really careful that we're not resting on foundations that are easily destroyed or running to mountains that will ultimately be destroyed. Often our foundations and our mountains are related. I'll give you an example. So if, if wearing this mask is a supreme comfort to you, a supreme source of comfort, then you may be seeking shelter in a temporary refuge. But also, if having to wear this mask causes your whole world to shimmy and shake and fall apart, then it's possible that you're building your life on a sandy foundation. Instead, with or without, On or off, find your refuge and your foundation in Christ. If you're finding comfort or strength in something the Bible clearly calls sin, then then repent and run from that. Don't remain in that. Run from that. So, for instance, if if pornography and self-pleasure or drunkenness or favoritism in all of its forms or deceit or pride... Mark your life. Be careful that you're not, you're not building your life on one of these temporary foundations. Be careful that you don't run to them as your mountain of refuge. When things get hard, when the day is long, make sure that you're not running to them. But instead, choose the righteous refuge instead. What are the things in your life right now that if I pulled the rug out from underneath them, you might be tempted to think that I also just pulled the Lord off of his throne? Are, are those marked by relationships or, or, or success, maybe at work or in the home or, or in the classroom? What, what would be so fragile and yet seem so sure to you, but that if I pulled that out, it might tempt you to believe that the Lord has fallen off his throne as well. In every difficulty, there will be a temptation to run to the wrong refuge. Fight that temptation. Brothers and sisters, fight that temptation for yourself and for others. And instead, choose the Lord as your only refuge. He is the right and righteous refuge. The second thing David wants to remind us of in the second stanza, is that every difficulty, within every difficulty, there is testing that comes from the righteous ruler. Let's look at our passage again, starting in verse 4. The Lord is in his holy temple. The Lord's throne is in heaven. His eyes see, his eyelids test the children of man. The Lord tests the righteous, but his soul hates the wicked and the one who loves violence. Let him rain coals on the wicked, fire and sulfur, and a scorching wind shall be the portion of their cup. For the Lord is righteous. He loves righteous deeds. The upright shall behold his face. The Lord is in his holy throne room. David needs us to remember this. In the midst of whatever difficulty he's experiencing or you are experiencing, it doesn't change the fact that the Lord is in his throne room. He is far above all of the the difficulties and the faulty foundations of this world. He is not shaken. He's not disturbed by them. In fact, in Psalm 75 verse 3, the Lord says, When the earth and all of its inhabitants shake, I'm the one who studies its pillars? The language and imagery David uses here in Psalm 11 emphasize the kingship of the Lord. So, the word translated in the ESV in verse 4 as temple could also mean palace, which seems appropriate because in this place is his throne. And there he sits on his throne, surveying all of his creation. I'm so grateful that. Brandon read for us from Revelation chapter 4 today about the mighty throne of God and the great one who sits upon it. Because from this throne, our psalm reminds us that nothing escapes his gaze. His eyes see, it says. His eyelids test the children of mankind. This anthropomorphic image is meant to contrast the Lord from the pagan idols who, according to to Psalm 135, they have mouths but they don't speak. They have eyes but they don't see. The Lord has eyes and he sees. Nothing escapes his gaze. So David has not set his hope, he has not found his refuge in some kind of provisional demigod, but instead, He has set himself, he has found his refuge in the righteous ruler of all the universe. So when David repeats the imagery of eyes in verse 4, it's meant to reinforce that that careful scrutiny he gives to the upright and to the wicked. His eyes see. His eyelids test the children of man. So not even the, the darkness of verse 2, is a hindrance to the eyes of the Lord. Remember in Psalm 139, the psalmist proclaims, if I say, surely the darkness shall cover me and the light about me uh, be night, even the darkness is not dark to you. The night is bright as the day. The darkness is as light with you. This piercing, omniscient sight is a comfort to the upright. It is a comfort to us, but it is a terror to the wicked. The upright know that even while being ambushed at night, they are seen and cared for by the sovereign ruler of all the universe. The wicked, on the other hand, they, they foolishly think that the darkness will cover their evil deeds. They're stricken to discover that the Lord has known all along. Nothing has slipped past him. Does that mark you as one who is not afraid of the dark because you know the Lord sees you? Or one who hopes that their mistakes will be hidden by the dark? That their vices and their sins will be hidden in the darkness? Know that the Lord sees all that his piercing gaze sees all. And more than just seeing the evil of the wicked, the Lord despises the wicked. Watch the escalation here. Not only does he see it, but he despises them. His soul hates the wicked and the one who loves violence. To his very core, his soul, the Lord hates the wicked. Sin is so antithetical To the heart of God, that when He when He lays eyes on it in whatever amount, it, it, it boils up righteous indignation within him. And more than just seeing the wicked, and more than just hating the wicked, the Lord in our passage punishes the wicked. He does not impotently sit by. And allow the wicked to prosper forever. The the wicked may think that they're able to ambush the upright in the dark. But they don't realize that equally swift and violent justice is coming down on their head from the righteous ruler of all creation. Let him rain coals on the wicked, verse 6. Fire and sulfur and a scorching wind shall be the portion of their cup. David is, is drawing here on the story of Sodom and Gomorrah from Genesis 19. And the inhabitants of those two cities were destroyed by fire and sulfur that fell from the heavens, that rained down on them because of their rampant sin and wickedness. And, and throughout Scripture, Sodom and Gomorrah stand as reminders that sin has consequences. Sin has consequences in this life and in the next. Brad reminded us last week, starkly, that hell is real. Hell is real. There really is a place reserved for the wicked where the wrath of God will forever punish them for the sins they've committed. And the imagery that's associated with hell throughout Scripture is one of torment and fire and suffering. So here in Psalm 11, we have burning coals, fire, sulfur, and scorching winds. In in Luke 16, the, the rich man who is in hell, he's in agony and fire. In Revelation 20, When it describes hell, it describes it as a lake of fire and sulfur, where the wicked are tormented day after day for all eternity. Now, it's important to remember that the pattern of Scripture is to use imagery to argue from the lesser to the greater. Not from the greater to the smaller, but from the lesser to the greater, meaning that it uses the small to represent something that's far larger. And so arguing from the lesser to the greater, we have to come to the sobering realization that damnation is more dreadful than it has ever been represented. The wrath of God is more dreadful than it has ever been represented. We balk against these images of fire and brimstone and sulfur and scorching wind. And it's not a product of our age, it's a product of our sin, We have always balked against the wrath of God. And yet we need to know, have the sober realization that all of those images, as terrifying and as terrible as they may be, they are nothing compared to the reality of sin. That means when we see pictures and videos and read stories of the horror of the wildfires currently burning across the Pacific Northwest, we're, we're... Taking lives and and property at will, that's nothing in comparison to the terror of the wrath of a holy God. In the book of Revelation, the Apostle John witnesses how the end will come about. And in chapter six, we see the story of how six seals are broken in sequence. Each of them signifies the progressive destruction of this world, culminating in the return of Christ with with seven. And we see in Revelation 6, verse 12, it says, when he opened the sixth seal, I looked and behold, there was a great earthquake and the sun became black as sackcloth and the full moon became like blood and the stars of the sky fell to the earth as the fig tree sheds its winter fruit. When shaken by a gale. Don't don't miss that detail there. That what what John sees there is a great earthquake, a worldwide earthquake. Psalm eleven, verse three has come true. The foundations of the earth are destroyed. They are shaken. The sky vanished like a scroll that's being rolled up. And every mountain and island was removed from its place. Every mountain and island was removed from its place. The mountains that we are tempted to run to are literally destroyed. The valleys are lifted up. The high places are leveled. The kings of the earth And the great ones, and the generals, and the rich, and the powerful, and everyone, slave and free, hid themselves in the caves, and catch this, and among the rocks of the mountains, calling to the mountains and to the rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne, and from the wrath of the Lamb, for the great day of their wrath has come, and who can stand The temptation to run to the wrong refuge, to run to mountains, remains even when there are no mountains. Inherent within our own wickedness is the desire to constantly run from the face of God. And even in his return, when he lays waste to all of that, in our wickedness, we will still run to the rubble and hope that it will cover us from the wrath of God. We hate the face of God. We hate the righteousness of God. And the wrath is coming. Who can stand? Who could possibly deserve this unfathomable punishment? Well, the Bible tells us right here that everyone deserves it. Everyone deserves it. God created us as eternal beings in his image to dwell with him forever. We, we were to walk with him and remain in him forever, but we rebelled and ran from that. We chose our own mountains as our refuge. We rejected his eternal authority and tried to set ourselves on his throne. And every time we sin, every time we place our plans and our will over his, we add to our wages of death. Eternal death, separated from his loving kindness and in hell under his wrath forever. And before we're allowed to to charge God with hypocrisy, for, for answering violence with violence, back in Psalm 11, David reminds us that the Lord is righteous. That it is right that he brings this wrath upon the sin of the world, upon The sinners of the world. God is good. And when He sends fire and sulfur and scorching winds forever upon the heads of His enemies, He is doing so because He is holy and He is the defender of holiness forever. But with that righteousness, Psalm 11, verse 7, with that righteousness comes a love for righteous deeds. And those who do them. Which therein lies the beauty of the gospel of Christ. Because the greatest of righteous deeds was when Christ, the perfect Lamb of God, hung on the cross as the substitute for sinners. On that cross, he bore the wrath of God, meant as a portion, meant as the portion of our cup. He did not let that cup pass from him. Instead, he took it and he drank it down. He died in the place of sinners on the cross and rose three days later from the grave, offering salvation to all who would turn away from the other mountains and the other refuges and seek him and him alone as their Lord and Savior. The wrath of God, his righteous retribution for the sins of the wicked, our passage teaches us today that it is an inexhaustible flame. It is an inexhaustible flame that can only be quenched by the blood of Christ. It can only be quenched by the blood of Christ. It's why later today we will remember what Christ has done for us in our salvation by drinking the juice that reminds us of the blood of Christ, the only thing that could quench the wrath of God. So, have you trusted in Christ to save you from the fire to come? Is he your Lord? Is he your refuge? If he's not, you can pray right here, right now, in your seats that he would be. You can, you can confess those sins that should send you to hell and instead ask him to rescue you and to be the Lord of your life. I'd love to talk to you about what that means when we're done here. You can, you can find me or one of the other elders or anyone you've seen up here today. We would love to talk to you about what it means to trust in Jesus Christ as your only Lord and Savior and about what comes next. Because there, there is more. There's more that comes next. Because Jesus didn't just save us from wrath. He saved us to the greatest reward he could ever offer us. Himself. Look at the last line of Psalm 11. It says, For the Lord is righteous. He loves righteous deeds. The upright shall behold his face. There are so many places in Scripture that remind us that this is a mind-boggling gift. That we would get to see and worship the holy face of God. It's, this is the great gift that Stephen receives in Acts chapter 7, where, where he's just preached this incredible sermon linking Jesus to the prophecies of old and calling them to repent. And he, he looks up and filled with the Holy Spirit, he, he glimpses his refuge, his Savior, standing at the right hand of the throne of God. And so as he's buried under a mountain of stones meant to kill him, He calls out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. Stephen is so secure in the face of his savior, his refuge, that he uses his final breath to shout to his murderers that forgiveness is available to them. Forgiveness is available to them. He doesn't quote Psalm 11, verse 6. Lord, bring wrath upon them. He shouts that forgiveness is available. The world was not worthy of such faithfulness. So what does that look like for us? What does that look like for us to live that out? Two quick thoughts and then we'll close. First, first, Rejoice in this testing. Rejoice in this testing. The testing that comes from the righteous ruler. James 1 verses 2 and 4 says, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect. That you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Find your hope even in the testing. Because the testing is what proves in us that we are worthy to receive the great reward of the face of God. Not in our own strength, but as a gift that comes from Christ's righteousness. And finally, persuade others. Persuade others. 2 Corinthians 5 verse 11 says, Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade Others. We persuade others. Having just been reminded, maybe for the first time, maybe for the thousandth time, that hell is real and the wrath of God is coming for those who remain in their wickedness, knowing that fear, persuade others. Open your mouths, talk to others, explain to them the goodness of Jesus Christ, point them towards your refuge. When we looked at at Revelation chapter 6 and the wicked that continue to run to the mountains even though they're destroyed, the last thing they say is, how can anyone stand when the wrath of God is brought down? How can anyone stand? And it's in the next chapter that we learn the answer. In Revelation 7, 9 and 10, it says, After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number. From every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, they were standing before the throne. Before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes. Picturing the righteousness that's been given to them in Christ. With palm branches in their hands. And what do they cry out? They cry with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. These will be our words for all eternity. Right now, brothers and sisters, may they be our words now to those around us who stand under the wrath of God. Do not be tempted to run to the wrong refuge. Instead, rejoice in the testing that comes from our righteous ruler. And may he be glorified in all that we do. Let's pray. Salvation belongs to you, God. Salvation belongs to you who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Lord, forgive us where we have run to the wrong refuges. Forgive us where we have chosen creation over our creator. Forgive us where we have trafficked in fear. Lord, your wrath is terrifying to behold. We pray that we would not dismiss these truths, not neglect them, but stare full in the face of the righteous ruler, the righteous ruler who brings holy wrath on our sin, but who has laid that on your son. We pray that we would walk in the refuge and protection of your son, and that we would constantly love to worship you in that, and to declare that to others. May that mark us as, as individuals and as a church in all that we do. We pray these things and all things in the name of the one who sits on the throne and of the Lamb. In Jesus Christ's name we pray. Amen.